When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by David Priest, coach and columnist, and by Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. A world away from the World Cup, I've been to see how the other half live at Notts County, where Luke Williams is an insightful, impressive head coach. We've a duty to dwell on the issues raised in Qatar and particularly the morally bankrupt approach of FIFA. But first England. David, an impressive start, although in contentious circumstances. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's one of those World Cups that where or occasions where politics and, and the, the football itself are like, you just can't separate them at the moment. And I think that. As a player and as, as captain of England, I'm sure that Harry Kane would just want to concentrate the football. You know, it's such a huge subject with such sort of brevity that it does need addressing. But at the same time, you have to think that it has to have some effect in, in your preparation for the games. And the fact that they came out, performed so well, got such a resounding win. Plus, when you add to that, the, the, the other results that have come afterwards with Tunisia and Denmark and... And obviously Saudi Arabia and Argentina, it makes it look even more impressive. But it's it does just take the shine off things, doesn't it? You know, mm. these these things have to be addressed. It's unavoidable. There's there's no way of getting around it. But at the same time, it's so disappointing that we can't just enjoy what is a festival of football. It is such a joyous occasion for most of the time, anyway. And I think that um, yeah, it's been the biggest disappointment for me that we haven't been able to, to, to concentrate on just the football and, and the real enjoyment of it. Mm. Yeah, we'll, we'll go into those issues in greater depth later on in the podcast. Aid, as a football nation, we get carried away quite quickly with the England team. Is there any danger about that now? Not, not from within the group, no. I, I think that Gareth Southgate's reaction at the final whistle will tell you that. He was disappointed, wasn't he, to have conceded a couple of goals in the manner that they did. So I think that the, the team will stay grounded. The public, I, I think it's a slow burner, this tournament with the public. There, there are a number of turnoffs. You've just touched on it there. You know, FIFA's stance or, or, on certain matters does leave a sour taste. So I think it's going to take a, a few more good performances for, for England fans to really buy in and uh, and start dreaming of going all, all the way. But it was it was a very impressive opening performance, I thought accomplished, very controlled and full of vibrant movement. It, it looked to me as if Gareth Southgate has learned quite a lot from some of the Premier League managers this season in terms of the way the players took up different positions, created unusual angles. 
And as a consequence, they just tore Iran apart. It was, it, they looked a very well-coached side, I've got to say, and extremely well-prepared. Mm. Of all the positives, Dave, presumably the biggest would be Jude Bellingham. You know, incredible to think he's only 19. Obviously a generational player. You know, we're, we're talking transfer fees in excess of 100 million already. Interesting, by the way, that it was that the suggestions that that Dortmund would actually prefer him to go to a non-state-funded club like Liverpool. How far can this this kid go? Yeah, he can go as far as he wants to go, and I think he will simply because it, look, he's, he's talented. Yes, he's he looks like the the kind of missing midfield link that England have been looking for. You just look at the runs that he was making. You know, he, he he's willing to to go beyond just doing his job, and he's being given a bit of license to to be able to do that as well. But what's more impressive for me is just his his old demeanour, his old manner, his his attitude towards the game. He comes across very mature, and he he looks like he has an elite mentality to go with his elite talent as well. And, and that's what's going to take him forward. For England in this tournament, he's going to be vital that he stays fit and be able to manage his time and manage his minutes because he's going to be the difference, I feel, that, um, you know, when it comes to to the more testing games because we can judge Gareth Southgate and, and the players all we want in this group stage, but these aren't the games that are going to be judged on or they should be judged on. It's when the, the real tests come. And like I said, he could be the difference. Mm. A player that you've seen evolve a mature aid, Bakaya Saka, he's actually to the manner born as well, isn't he? Yeah, he's such a good player. So, so good. Lovely to see him score goals. Good goals as well in the game, especially after what happened to him at the end of the Euros. Very much like Jude Bellingham. I think that he's got that elite mentality to go with the the confidence and the talent. It's It's remarkable what he's been through already. And nothing seems to phase him or affect him. He's making his debut in the World Cup finals like Jude Bellingham is. And, and they're playing like it's a training game. Just going at opponents, doing everything so naturally. Not not one sign of, of either of those guys tightening up. Incredible, really. When I think back to when I was 19... I would have been absolutely nowhere near it. I'd like to think I was a pretty pretty decent young player, but especially Bellingham in the game, the way he, he controlled and dominated it was just extraordinary. But yeah, we've got two exceptional young footballers there in a group of young players that looks a little bit special, I've got to say. We don't want to get too carried away, but... I think Gareth Southgate's got to be happy with the tools that he's got to work with at the moment. The, the, this um, young, vibrant selection of footballers is brilliant. Yeah, and I, what I've been impressed by is the way that Gareth Southgate is using that the, the depth of that group, David. If you think about it, you know, I know it's it's a it's a modern, almost a fashion trend now, which probably came initially from rugby. This whole idea of they're not substitutes anymore; they're finishers. The number of players that he got on the pitch towards the end of that game against Iran was an object lesson in how to, one, manage workloads and, two, give people opportunities. Yeah, and that depth that we've got where you you have players on the bench who quite easily could fit into the start 11. Obviously, there was a lot of conjecture about Phil Foden not starting the game, having to bring, being able to bring on a player of his calibre. 
you're not weakening your team at all and you're giving the opposition different problems. It is a real great squad that's it's got strength and depth, but also I think it's great credit to Gareth Southgate, the way that he's over these last, the previous two tournaments, another time as manager, he has created a, a culture and environment where it's a good group of personalities as well. So it's important for him, and perhaps in the in the way that he he's, he's built his group and chose this this squad, for example, you know you look at somebody like an Ivan Tony over Callum Wilson. The the, the choice there, the the very not similar players, but very similar standard of players, and you, you get slightly different things from each other. But I think you, Gareth probably's looked at it and thought, you know, who's going to be the best when they're not playing? Who's going to be more of a squad player? Who's going to be bring more to this squad, even though they're not playing, and that's the type of decision that he's made to make sure that this group is is, is really one. And you can see in all the videos that the the, the England's uh, media team put out, you know, it's a great atmosphere and environment that we're all working in, and, and and that helps massively. Yeah, Southgate's brilliant at that, isn't he? At the fostering unity within the group. Can I just ask you, David, about uh, the term finishes? rather than subs, you've obviously recently worked in the game. Can you convince players that aren't in the starting eleven that they're a finisher and not a sub? Can you, can you change that mentality? I, I think that's the, one of the biggest challenges as a manager. You know, you, you look at somebody like Jurgen Klopp and the way that he brought somebody like Shaqiri into, into the Liverpool squad. And I'm not saying he was happy with being on the bench, but he accepted it more and... So when when you do that and you make them feel valuable and think they can they've got a part to play, then they're more likely to come in and have an impact. It might be just wordplay, you know. It might be just you know substitutes, finishes, whatever. But behind that is probably the work to make sure that they feel important. And I think that rather than the the, the wording of of those players or their roles, it is really about making them feel wanted and making them feel important and making them feel really feel like they can they can make a difference. Mm. United States on Friday, Aid. Where will their threats come from, do you think? I looked at that game against Wales. I just thought their stamina might be an issue. And certainly with Pulisic, who's their golden boy, you know, their great marketable talent, he does seem to struggle with that sense of responsibility. Is that fair, do you think? Well, they faded, didn't they, quite badly. It was, it was an excellent first half against Wales. Very fit and energetic, loads of legs in that side, particularly in midfield. But luckily England have got arguably the best the best midfield unit. I mean, Rice and Bellingham will be a match for anyone in the, in the competition. They've got um, two players that that are talented and young and full of full of legs. So that would be a good battleground. Yeah, Pulisic is the, is the one you've got to watch, I suppose. He's the, the unlocker. But yeah, can he do it over 90 minutes? There's a big burden of responsibility on him. I thought, he, yeah, he came through, didn't he, with a great assist in that game. So he'll be, he'll, he'll look to impact again. Uh, probably the one player I'd pick out that we need to worry about is, is, is Timothy Weyer. He obviously scored the goal. It was a great run, wasn't it? And and a very tidy finish, I've got to say, on the run. Really confident. So And he and he wanted to run at his man as often as possible. And, and with England's full-backs... Pushing forward, Luke Shaw, particularly down that side, that might be that might be an area that the USA look to target. But I don't think England have anything to fear here. If they produce the same standards, they'll sweep USA aside. I'm sure. Mm. 
Anyone else in that American team impress you, Dave? You know, I'll put my hand up here, and this is a biased opinion because you know, I've always thought that Anthony Robinson in a top six team would be terrific. Now, I say I'm biased because I remember Anthony when he was two years old. He was the mascot <laughs> for my um, my son's youth team. His, his, his father was the was the coach, Tony. So uh, are there any young, because it's quite a young group, isn't it? So are there anyone there who can actually seize the day, as it were? Yeah, I, I think, you know, you, you look at someone like Tal Adams, who's played for Leeds this season, who's, who's a real fulcrum in that midfield, and obviously McKinney, who's, who's at Juventus. They do have, you know, they do have legs in that midfield, and but I also th- I also think when it comes to the England game, it, it's really down to how both managers approach the game. And I think if um, Greg Berhalter, if how he looks at this game and thinks, well, maybe I need to be a little bit more defensive. Do I look at the other sides that have had a little bit of success already in the tournament that have been more front foot and been more competitive? Do I do that and and risk sort of England's quality? Damaging them, and also about Gareth Southgate. You know whether he just uh, sticks with with the game plan uh, against Iran and the formation and and personnel. That's going to be the biggest deciding factor for me. Mm. What about Wales, Adrian? The Gareth Bale effect. We seem to mention it every time we talk about Wales, don't we? <laughs> you know that penalty was peak Bale. I thought. You know, very very intense, those great inhalations that he was making. Again, is it the same issue as the States? Some of those players, Bale in particular, maybe Aaron Ramsey, they haven't had a lot of game time, have they? It's, it's a very good point, yeah. Unlike the, the England players, of course. So, yeah, no, there are loads of them, aren't there, in the Wales team that don't get regular first-team football. And it, if this was a summer tournament where you had friendlies and you'd had a camp to sort of have that mini pre-season that wouldn't have been such a big deal, but because we've effectively gone straight into it, it is a factor. They didn't look, I mean, Gareth Bale had to conserve his energy. He played pretty badly, I thought, in the game. He wasn't great. Aaron Ramsey didn't really impact it that much either, but you kind of still want them on the pitch, don't you, if you're a Wales fan, just for those big moments. And and, and Bale won the penalty with a smart piece of play, just nipping in ahead of the defender, drawing the foul, and, and he was never going to miss. They're just, it's all, I don't want to be too brutal, but it was, it can at times look like they're playing with a man down because he can't get around the pitch like, you know, like he was able to or like he would be able to if he was more match fit. So they've got to accommodate him, but we know, we know what he's capable of. Yeah. Even a half fit Gareth Bale can produce a match winning moment. So yeah, Wales have got to work around him. But what they need to do though is get Kiefer Moore into that starting eleven. In a game, the game against Iran, that could be the absolute difference maker. He he would be the key guy because every time the ball went in the box, how bad were Iran? They were shocking. So I I think Wales have got a pepper that eighteen yard box, and 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 Kiefer Moore I think could could pick up a couple of goals quite easily in the game. Mm. Yeah, I suppose it's all about playing to your strengths, isn't it? David, I don't know whether you, like me, was struck by the non-footballing reasons for that performance by Iran. In terms of, you know, if you looked at Carlos Quiroz, he's been consistently uncomfortable trying to deal with the political issues. His players showed tremendous courage in either speaking out or even staying silent during a national anthem. 
there is a almost a pall cast over Iran because of external issues. Yeah, <clears throat> we've always already alluded to the sort of disruption that something like that other the arm band issue can cause in in the England camp. But I think this is just it's almost a, a thousand times that problem for for Iran. You even look inside their group. You know, you've got players in that group who've been very outspoken in the support of the author, authoritarian regime in, in Iran. Now, when, when you've got your, you know, your, your captain who was uh, who's come out and said he stands with the the women of Iran, you know, he's not just making some gesture that's that's going to to bring criticism to him. You know, like I think it was Omar Jalili was being interviewed yesterday, the the Iranian um, comedian. And he was just saying that uh, uh, there's much more stakes for these players. You know, they could go, go home and, and sort of be in real danger for their lives. Their families could be in danger. And I think it just puts things in perspective a little bit about, you know, the sacrifices or the the, the gestures that's that's we're making as a, as a, as a country and a, and a team. You know, that's got to weigh heavily on, on, on players' preparation for games. And even due, and and they did look very subdued. They they they, they didn't look like a team that was that I expected to see. I, I, I expect them to be more resolute and to be much harder to beat. And like I said, I think it was it was visible the impact it's had on them. Yeah, and on the other hand, you've got Saudi Arabia responsible for one of the great upsets of World Cup history. Very ironic heroes, given. You know the political shade of of the regime that they represent, Aid. Yeah, but but they're a football team, and let, yeah, and, and those players do, do deserve credit. I know we we should heap it heap it on them because they've beaten a team that hadn't lost since twenty nineteen. It was a quite remarkable result. Great for the tournament. Absolutely brilliant. We now go into each game almost expecting the unexpected now rather than having this predictable procession of favourite after favourite winning the game. So Saudi Arabia have definitely done the World Cup organisers a favour there with that, that victory. And didn't they do well? I don't know if you've seen the video. There's a video of her for Have you seen it in the, yeah. uh, the, the halftime team talk? And, you know, simple messages. But what struck me, aside from the fact that he really did raise his voice and tried to get them get them going for the second half to be better in their duels. It, it was that there was no fear. It wasn't about Messi. It wasn't about Argentina's plethora of superstars and how they can hurt you. It's about you as players can give more and you must give more. And boy, did they do that. That was, uh, yeah, great goals and a, and, a, and a great a great match, I have to say. Mm. I, I was fascinated by Renard, uh, Dave, He's come a long way since Cambridge United, hasn't he? He coached Shanghai Costco before going. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a supermarket or what. Then he went off to Vietnam. He's done the he's done the sort of international sweepstake, hasn't he? He's he's basically managed Zambia twice, the Ivory Coast, Morocco. Excelled in in French football, Algerian football. You know, he is a true global football man, isn't he? Yeah, he hasn't just come a long way, he's been a long way. You know, <laughs> he's still a handsome so-and-so as well, isn't he? Oh, that's, <laughs> they don't even know it as well. <laughs> <laughs> but he's like a modern-day, is it Boram Militinovic? 
Yeah, it was it was the legendary sort of um, Yugoslavian coach who, who's been all around the world and with the various countries at the World Cups. But um, yeah, it, he's that that halftime team talk was very much from the you know it, it looked like it came from a, a Cambridge dressing room, didn't it? And it just shows you really. It, it always shows me. It's fascinating when I see managers and coaches inside dressing rooms, sort of how universal most <laughs> most team talks are. I mean, there's a certain amount of information and tactical information getting to, to players at half-time, but it, it, it just shows you, you know, what a real will and desire can do against the very, very best. And I think that um, when, you, when you look at him and you look at how suave he is and good-looking and it's great to see you inside the dressing room just gets down to the real nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to spring this on both of you here. What's the best team talk that you've ever had? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that is a, that is bringing it on me. I, I, do you know what? I can't think. I can't think of one that's. That... Oh, your managers are going to be delighted. <laughs> yeah, oh. no. I mean, I, I can tell you the worst one. <laughs> Go on, eh? We had one. I mean, it's just quite a funny story. We had a. It was actually. It wasn't really a team talk, but it was a debrief the day after. We went to a health club, um, and it was Alvin Martin, and uh, and basically. He said, right, everyone in the sauna, it was a massive sauna, and there was like 15, 16 blokes in there with Alvin, and he, he go, he's going through the previous game with us, and he's gradually getting more and more irate with us, um, telling us how bad we were, but he's also <laughs> getting increasingly hot and burning <laughs> up, and not just yeah, a few minutes in, just as he's reaching boiling point, he actually says... You know what? Let's, just, let's, let's get let's get out of here. I can't do this. Forget forget it. We'll start again outside. So that that's the one one that really stands out. But um, yeah, no, I haven't had too many inspirational ones. I got slapped once, um, which was which was interesting, <laughs> and it did it did actually work. What, well, was it deserved though? No, no, no. <laughs> it was. It's just because I was so laid back, David, and the manager was. Yeah, it was um, just trying to get something out of me. It was just a little slap across the chops. Probably you couldn't do it these days, but it did. It did wake me up. <laughs> I think I scored. So it was all right, Dave. Yeah, I, I, I remember one at uh, at Sunderland. It was when Peter Reid first came to the club, and. I think he had seven, I can't remember, seven or 11 games to save us. So we were in the relegation zone and it was a real danger of being, going down the third tier. We went to, away to Burnley to Turf Moor and it was one of the final games and we really de we desperately needed points in any shape or form. And the, the kickoff was delayed to 20 minutes because there were 6,000 Sunderland fans coming to the game. And there were a lot, few problems getting into the stadium. So... Um, We'd already been off the warm up, so just all the teams sat there. I think I was I was on the bench at the time, and, and Peter Reed just went went into a stand up routine. <laughs> and, like it was, I mean, those final games of the season, it was sort of it was nerve wracking. You know, it was touch and go whether we we're going to stay up at all that season. And I, the, the game ended up finishing nil nil. It was it was a bit of a drab affair, a real sort of um, a, a, a real sort of physical tussle with with Burnley, but. It was like he just put everyone at ease, and the joke. One of the jokes he, he told that at that time it was a real long-winded affair, but he can tell a joke like nobody else. And um, I still tell it this to this day. I told it last Saturday with some friends, <laughs> so that's how much of an impact it had on me. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I suspect you won't be able to say it on here. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay, uh, Qatar. 
the team rather than the nation, Aid, the worst host team ever. Oh, they were horrific, weren't they? They were so bad. It was, they, they didn't look like they were capable. I mean, they did have one good chance, didn't they, actually? I was going to say they didn't look capable of scoring. but Just four half-time, yeah. But, yeah, but that was, I think, their, yeah, one of their only touches inside the box. Yeah, they were naive. They're very nervous. And, and it, it did shock me because they've been together as a club side for months, haven't they? So they've had so long to prepare. I thought they'd be better organised than they were, but I just think the talent gap was too big, really, between them themselves and Ecuador. And, um, yeah, look, if Ecuador had put their foot on the gas, that could have been five or six easily, couldn't it? So, mm. Um, mm. yeah, it's going to be tough, I think, for, for Qatar to to get a point, maybe even a goal. Yeah. I think it's the other end they should worry. Dave, as a coach, can you please critique their goalkeeper, preferably without going into hysterics? No, well, do you know what? I'll probably go back to what he had said. I think when it comes to the build-up to this tournament, it's that lack of real sort of... I don't know if it's competitive, but the, the players... Just, yeah, exactly, yeah. And then the, the players, if the players have been in that group for six months with, with not playing any club games either, then, you know, they're not used to playing under pressure and and the, the whole focus, you know... I, I, I think it was, it might have been John Stones who was talking before the tournament or James Madison, I think it was, when he's talking about, you know, not having too much time to, to think about it, not much time, not much build-up, you know, so there's not that build-up of pressure going into the tournament where they can just go straight into it. Well, Qatar have had six months of this and there is a lot of pressure on them and, and of course, Qatar wants to show the world, you know, wants, wants to put on a great show for them. So the pressure on those players is, is that of the of the authorities there where they they, they have to... Sh- give a good, good account of themselves, and they didn't. And I think you see that in the throughout the sign, especially with the goalkeeper, because his decision-making was erratic. You know, even that cross that he comes for early in the game for the disallowed goal, it, it looked it looked as if he was at panic stations. And I think that um, that feeds throughout the team as well. And, you know, you can try and pick up technically and on aspects of his game, but more than anything it is it's it's just that sort of that nerviness and that's uh, those decisions that uh, that he's been that he's taken and yeah giving away a penalty as well and yeah, it doesn't look great at all no well the world cup isn't the only game in town Notts county had a sellout 16 and a half thousand crowd on saturday a national league record luke williams the head coach works in a modern analytically driven system as I discovered, it can be all-consuming. Luke, first, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, the World Cup is usually the only game in town, isn't it? But for you, it's business as usual. Now, as a football man, you know, a coach steeped in the game, that must feel a bit strange, mustn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, of course, this is the first time anyone's ever experienced this with a World Cup taking place in, in the middle of a really busy season domestically. You know, yesterday I, I got in a car to pick the kids up from nursery and the radio came on, you know, just when I started the engine talk sport and they were talking about the players on the pitch warming up and it took me by surprise. I'd completely forgotten that England were kicking off and just, you know... Uh, a day off and back in Wales where I live with my family and pick up, do the nursery run and this, that and the other and then suddenly there's like a, 
World Cup game going on, which ordinarily, of course, I would be, you know, sat down ready with uh, mm. the TV in front of me and, and, you know, watch all the warm-up and the, everything. So, yeah, very strange. But we have to try to concentrate on, on the domestic season and try and use the World Cup as, like, hopefully some inspiration, you know, see some exciting football and, you know, feel excited for the next game for us. Mm-hmm. As a coach, do you feed off... The example set in Qatar in terms of, you know, every tournament has its own different sort of tactical nuances and everything else. Will you, as the tournament progresses, do you think, pick up things from from those? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that will happen. And, you know, it's really good players and really good teams of players that change football, you know, like uh, the Invincibles. I think they change football in in this country forever from that point onwards when we saw this, how dominant this team was playing a different type of football and then Barcelona came along and they played a, a brand of football no one had ever really seen quite in the same way and that changed football again and now we have like the examples of Liverpool and Manchester City changing football again and I'm sure this World Cup will you know produce a team and players that that do stuff that is is really incredible and and will change the course of football from that moment on. Mm. In terms of your own managerial influences, where do they begin and end? You know, I worked with Gus Poyet at Brighton and was a huge influence on me. Was really intelligent, really incredibly bright about football, a really top, top person. And uh, he taught me lots and lots of different things about football and about dealing with players and so many different things and I think he was like a huge huge influence on me and then of course from a distance you watch the great managers of Mourinho and Guardiola and Klopp and Graham Potter you know you watch uh, the way that he progressed Brighton in an amazing way so lots and lots of the top guys you look at those examples at the very top and see if you can try to pinch an idea or listen to an interview and learn something like that. Mm. Yeah, we've had Graham on, on this podcast and what struck me about him was his emotional intelligence mm. because, you know, you're now dealing as a manager, what your early thought is, yeah. with players of 2022, that millennial generation have got completely different outlooks. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think one of my early experiences in coaching was working with young offenders when I worked at West Ham, you know, part of their community project and worked with school children, you know, after school clubs, the normal mainstream type of football stuff and junior football teams on a Sunday morning, this type of stuff. But then I started also to work with young offenders and that was an eye-opener and it, and it was very much you had to learn how to manage difficult, confrontational, sometimes violent, aggressive young people and several of them in a group together and you have two options, either you, you don't turn up for work again or you work out ways and techniques of being able to try to keep these young groups on track and on task and try to create something that they can all take part in without it spilling over into into a fight or worse. Yeah, I learned a lot about managing young people with big ego or different dynamics within their group that can flare up at any moment. So that, that was a really incredible experience and I learned a lot about managing young people in, in those years working for West Ham. Mm. And I think now, of course, with young professionals, we don't have some of the issues that might be common with young offenders, but we do have some, some things that are completely transferable, some 
mm. some ego and some vulnerability some, as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. And the feeling for the player of being feeling like aloof from the group or underappreciated, undervalued. All these things are the same for many, many young people in different levels of football. Yeah. Looking at Brighton, I know it's a few years ago you were there, but the principle of the club, or certainly the attitude of the club, seems to be set by the owner, Tony Bloom. There's a very analytically driven approach to recruitment, mm. and that filters through the club. Now, you've got something similar here. I wonder if you could explain to us your owner's you know, own you know, football radar, which yeah. obviously the analytics operation. I see parallels between what they're trying to do here and what Tony did in Brighton and, and also what's going on at Brentford. Is that fair? Yeah, that's very fair. And I think that, you know, to reassure football fans about the idea, really, the big idea behind the three clubs that you mentioned as included, is that we, we try and take away too much power from an individual. I think as a football manager, it's very common for that manager to come in with an idea about what a good player looks like or an idea about what type of personalities he wants in his dressing room. And if the recruitment is all geared around that one person's opinion and then the team are unsuccessful, now you probably have to go back to mm. the drawing board. But to go back to the drawing board in football means a lot of players that are under contract that are now surplus for requirement or a new manager with new ideas and they don't fit or so many different different potential problems and we we've seen some really you know really bad examples over the years i think you know many big clubs have have got in, into a difficulty because they allowed a, a huge amount of power for a manager signed a lot of players on long term contracts on good salaries for that manager and then ultimately it was unsuccessful they changed manager a new one doesn't want any of those players got a whole new ideas and this this problem can be compounded again and again and again you know, a friend of mine played for QPR and he said there's three teams in the dressing room. Players that were signed by this one, players were signed by that one and players signed by the current manager. And it's unhealthy. And more importantly, it's very dangerous for a football club because it can put the, the club in a you know, very vulnerable position. I think the idea is to try and have like a really logical, structured way of recruiting players and managers and staff so that they can transition from one group of staff to another without huge turnover of playing staff and, and backroom staff. And associated costs, of course. Exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. So as a, as a head coach operating here, what are the parameters of your responsibilities? Do you get involved in recruitment or is it more, well, they're the players, I'll get on and coach them? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. You know, I think that my performance as a coach will be is monitored constantly and, I, and I'm told where my performance level is on a regular basis and that's very clear. Then with regards to recruitment, any player that I think is a good option for the club, I can put that player forward and that's respected. There'll be work done on that player to see whether or not he fits with the recruitment programme. And if so, we can sign a player on my first recommendation. So to give a very Straightforward example, Aidan Baldwin was a player that I'd worked with at Bristol City and at MK Dons. And when I first arrived, arrived at the club, I, I thought that Aidan would be a, a very good signing for us. And I thought that uh, it was the right time for him because he was out of contract and looking for a new home. 
when the recruitment team ran numbers on Aiden and looked at the player against their model, it fit. So then we had a perfectly streamlined recruitment system for this one player with recommendation from head coach through to recruitment team and then unanimous agreement that the player is ideal, the player is happy with the terms set out and then we have a brilliant situation. Other players recommended by other people, everyone is open and honest and includes me in the process and every step of the way. But it's neither wholly my responsibility or something that I'm completely excluded from, it's neither. Mm. There does seem to be a trend now, a growing trend for fans to almost migrate away from the top level of the game. You know, that could be because of finances. There is a sense also that in, you know, say, the lower levels of the EFL and certainly here in the fifth tier, that people get more out of the game because there's a sense, a greater sense of identification. Now, you know, we're speaking a couple of days after you, you got 16,500 sellout, which is, you know, fantastic figures. Can you give me a sense of that community spirit and that link between the team, the club, and also the fan base? Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I think the game is changing. I don't, and of course, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But the top and the bottom of the game have become so so drastically different. You know, if you if you go into the car park at a Premier League club, it's uh, <laughs> you know it's a showroom for for very wealthy middle class people. But it's a working class sport, predominantly. I mean, it's sport for everyone, listen, we know that, but predominantly the sport is supported and participated in by you know, the, the masses, the working class masses. I think here you see that the players are much more identifiable for our fans. You know, that, to give you a great example, you know, the players went to the Winter Wonderland in the middle of town and uh, like five or six of them together walking around, enjoyed a you know, the environment, have some food from the stalls and get into the spirit of, you know, the sort of festive spirit. And some county fans saw them. Guys, can we have a picture? And like six, seven first-team players standing next to each other, pose for a picture and then mingle with the crowd. I don't think that is possible probably for mm. top, top sides now in, in England. I think, you know, the the attention would be too much and too dangerous and probably the players don't feel comfortable to be able to go into somewhere like that as much. I'm sure there are examples, of course, but I think that they're probably more attainable to players and, and more recognisable as somebody that is in a similar world to the average fan. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think people want to be able to come and identify with the team. They want the team to, you know, to, to play with the same spirit that they feel in their life and in their work. And, and I think that's more obvious at at this level of football than it is maybe at the top level. Because people identify with this club because of its tradition and its history. And you know, one of the last times I was here was when Sean, Sean Derry was manager. And you know his dad used to turn up, he's a Notts County fan, giving his team pelters, by the way, while he's on the touchline. I suppose that, again, that identification with a club because of age and tradition and everything else, it means a little bit more, doesn't it? Well, that's a great example. You're talking about Sean Derry and his, his dad being basically a fan. You know, he's, he's not coming there to support his boy or whatever. He's, he's just coming there to support the team and, as a fan. And I think, you look at where the club is located, you can walk out of the stadium and walk down the canal and five minutes you're in the, in the heart of town. There's everything that you want there. So 
it becomes an extension of the match day experience. You can, you know, three generations of, of, of family can meet up in town and have a bite to eat, a drink, walk down the canal and come to the game and walk back off is some of the new stadiums maybe not so accessible, mm. incredibly expensive. And so this club is right at the heart of the community and I'm sure that people have been, you know, in their family, the tradition is that they go to a match day together and they enjoy the match day experience together and, you know, probably, like I say, walk to the stadium and it's really like the, you know, the glamour, the romance of football is still really, really alive at Meadow Lane and that's, you know, you can feel that's tangible. Mm. What do you think the potential of this club is? I think that they can go from the infrastructure that they have now, I think they can compete in the championship. I think from what I saw when I was at Swansea in the championship last season, the level is moving further and further away from the bottom half of the EFL and closer to the Premier League. You know, the infrastructure at Swansea, for example, a club that are uh, in the second tier and have parachute monies that dried up now, but the training facility, mm. the infrastructure there for recovery. You know, they have a cryo chamber in the training ground, a swimming pool in the training ground. They have, like, the food is like going to a top restaurant. When you play too far north, you take an aeroplane. All these things added up give a team, at the end of the season, they give them a huge advantage because mm. everything is done at the highest standard. And so I think Notts County, as it is, just with the infrastructure that it has, can go through... Uh, without making drastic changes to the championship, then I think it gets more difficult. I think that they would need to to then have a, a look at what they want to do, how how much they want to try and push the next barrier to, cause to compete at the top of the championship mm. and ultimately try and get into the Premier League now is a phenomenal task. Yeah, because in many ways, you've got the hardest job in football, which is getting a club out of the National League because of the way it's structured, you know, one only one up, you know, automatically. How difficult is that, do you think? I think that you spot, I think just purely based on the numbers, it's the toughest because only two up, mm. all the other divisions more. Then I think that, you know, we have, for example, this season, if it was probably any other season of the National League or if you look at the, the divisions above us in the EFL, if you had... Our points tally at this point, at this stage of the season, you would be five or six points clear. With our points tally this season, with Wrexham, we're one point second. So the level is incredible because there are very attractive clubs for owners all the way down into the National League, like Notts County, like Chesterfield, like Wrexham. There are you know big clubs with big fan bases and good stadia. So the competition is becoming increasingly more difficult and the numbers of teams able to be promoted each season is remaining the same. How, how many of those teams do you think would thrive in the EFL? I've got no doubt that Wrexham, ourselves and Chesterfield, for example, I think there's, there's more. But if I give you the example of those three, provided that the club continue to be run in an organised way, they have no problem to be able to compete in League One for sure, without any doubt. I mean, Chesterfield, just a few seasons ago, I remember Chesterfield and Swindon Town being in the playoffs to try to get promoted to the Championship. Mm. And then I think with some mismanagement and so on, they fell on bad times, but they have an infrastructure there, they have a support, you know, they have a fan base, training facilities and so on. 
you know, with the correct management, they'll get back in for sure, and they can, you know, be in the EFL for a long, long time to come. Do you think more clubs deserve the chance to go up? In other words, should there be another place? Yeah, I mean, of course I'm biased, but yeah, I would love that because, you know, the teams that are fighting for really, really at the, you know, at the top, top level of the National League are ready to go into the EFL and ready to go in and make the EFL better. They're ready to go and make the EFL more exciting, more competitive. And one or two teams probably in, in League Two have stagnated a little bit and, and feel like, OK, we, we don't have to try too hard because the percentages of teams going down is so small, we can tread water a little bit and stay here. I think, you know, if we want to make uh, the level higher, then I think if we, we see more teams promoted would be beneficial. But of course, I know it sounds biased because mm. the position I'm in. Mm. So as a final point, you know, you've come here from Swansea via a development or background. What are the ambitions that you think you can fulfil at this place? For me, the, my ambition is to try to win, first and foremost, but I believe in a process to try to make winning more likely. You know, I really do, and I think that I'm happy that, that we're on the right track, but ultimately, my ambition is to win, and uh, I don't ever want us to get away from that. I just happen to believe that the way that we play is the roadmap for, like, and I, I mean, long-term success, you know. I don't want to be here for for a short period of time. Uh, but if I'm going to earn my keep, uh, I need to win. So my ambition is that, you know, I was, yeah, I've worked in, in academy setups, but I was assistant manager at League One level at 30 years old, went to the playoff final in, in League One, was a manager in League One, uh, 18 months after that or so and then assistant manager at uh, MK Dons for two years and then assistant manager at Swansea in the championship so I had a mixture of experience but I've had a uh, 10 years in senior football in EFL and now we've not seen the National League so I feel I'm ready to take on the responsibility to manage a, a huge club like Knotts and to be brave enough to try to win. All the best. Thanks for your time. Thank you. I don't mind admitting I found that a timely and quietly uplifting chat. David, that's a club that you've got to know, mainly through your links to the owners and the chief exec. What do you make about their approach? Yeah, I, I, I was highly impressed in the little bit of time that I spent there and obviously got got to know the owners, Alexander and Christopher Reeds. And I know there's a precedent for the way that they try to run the club through um, Brentford and, and, and Brighton and the owners there and their backgrounds do sort of uh, football data. And it's it's not just about, the, you know, having all this data at your disposal. It's about what you do with it and what's the most significant data to take from it. And the way that they've built things so far is that they've stuck really rigidly to, to this model. They've took, stuck rigidly to the financial model as well. They, they're not stepping outside of that. And I think all, all the background from, you know, all the data that they have, and they know all the, the, the KPIs and the 
contributes to winning performances and analysing players, even the manager, as, as Lou mentioned there. It really is a great way of looking at things because they can... It, it takes away a little bit of, you know, when it comes to post-game analysis, all their data can show, well, whether they should win a game, how they should have, you know, whether they should have done better in the game, whether the different parts of the game they need to improve. And it makes things such, so much easier as a, as a coach because it kind of takes away the, you can come away from a game with a different perspective because of your emotions and things that have happened in the game. And I think that's such a positive thing for, for as a coach and somebody in Luke's position where he can have that clear mindedness when it comes to analysing games afterwards. And like I said, it was really impressive the times that I spent in the club where, you know, you can see that the way that it worked, there was so much detail that they go into when it comes to not just the analysing post game, but their preparation for games as well. And of course, they're up against it in this division because they're not an exception in this league. Chesterfield have good finances behind them, even clubs like Solihull, but you've got the behemoth of of Wrexham and the money that they're throwing it as well. So they're up against it in that respect. But certainly the success they're having this season, the success that Luke's took them a little bit further on from last year, the future looks bright for them, I'll say that. Mm. Do you think, you know, given what David's just said there, Adrian, you know, Wrexham had... I think 10,000 at the weekend, more than 10,000. Chesterfield, I think it was more than 7,000. So the interest is growing in non-league football and obviously there'll be people migrating from, from league clubs or Premier League clubs to watch them while the World Cup's on. Did you agree with Luke's point that the whole system needs to change and actually more clubs of that ilk need the encouragement of maybe one extra promotion place? Yeah, I, I do. I do understand that. He admitted that he was a little bit biased, didn't he? There, um, <laughs> of course, he would want an extra promotion place. On that, I'm I'm actually slightly more old fashioned in that I think that the EFL status is is a is a precious thing. Having seen Southend United, you know, a club I I love, a club I played for, drop out of it. It's you know that it's such a big thing, and I think it will remain a big thing. Um, so I'm. I'm okay with it in terms of only having the two up, although that is harsh on National League clubs. But the best teams will get through eventually. I don't think Notts County have anything to worry about. They'll be back. But yeah, I, I don't know. Lose, losing three or even four EFL clubs per year, yeah. I'm, I don't know if I, I could sanction that if I was in any kind of position of power. Very quickly on on, on Luke's position, especially within the club, it was fascinating, I thought, about how he just accepts that, that this is the model and that he doesn't have that power to go out and sign players solely on his opinion. And it does make complete sense. It really does to have a have a club model whereby, you know, if you do sack a manager or if a manager is prized away by another club because they've been doing very well, that things don't then fall apart because, because the, the manager has signed half of that team. I think it for sustainability... What Notts County, Brentford, Brighton are doing is is smart, and other clubs would be very wise to follow suit. In my opinion, it's, it's the, it is the modern way. He talked about certain clubs having three different teams within one dressing room because they work with different managers. I thought that was that that really struck struck a chord with me. I can remember remember similar situations myself at South End in particular when Alan Little came and basically brought half the York team, and then. You know, a few months, you know, maybe a year later, he's gone. And then then you've got, you know, a real a mixture of players that, 
yeah, don't know where they stand. So no, I, I think what Notts County are doing is great. Yeah, that whole idea and the concept of taking power away from one individual, I think, was really interesting. And I think also, David, what interested me when he was talking about almost real-life experience, working with young offenders is almost a key managerial experience for him. Yeah, it, it is. And listen, being a football manager will always be about managing people. That's the bottom line. And and especially when, you know, he says that the power has been taken away from just one person and sort of not diluted, but just, just spread out. And it allows you to focus more on those types of things. And certainly when you, you come down to National League, players you're managing are going to have issues, whatever they are, whether it's, you know, the experiences they've had at previous clubs and having to drop down into the National League, having to manage those personalities that that stands him in great stead I think and it's those personalities that he's dealt with in the past have got extreme issues but because those extreme issues then he feels he'd probably be at the the other issues that he's higher up in football that that come to him he can probably deal with them a little bit easier a little bit more understanding and and not just thinking that a player should do this or should do that or he he shouldn't be feeling this way he should just get on with things Football's leaning more towards managing personalities and managing individuals. And I think that's really important for him to to have that in his background to make sure that, like I said, he can handle anything that comes into his office when players have got problems. Mm. Yeah, briefly, Aid, you know, romance might be alive and well at Meadow Lane, but isn't the reality of the modern game captured by Ronaldo leaving Manchester United with immediate effect and the Glazers looking to make between five and nine billion. Quite, quite a news day, wasn't it? Old Trafford. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not much to report here. Um, yeah, it's it's just a different a different stratosphere, isn't it, to, to what's going on in the National League. You know, big global company, aren't they, Manchester United? And on Ronaldo, it had to happen. He had to go. That's what he wanted. I think ultimately... He did Ten Hag a favour as well with his outburst because you know it's, it's forced a clean break, hasn't it? And I think I think that both men and the club itself will probably be better off for it. So, um, but yeah, it was all a, all a little bit ugly, wasn't it? But yeah, as for the Glazers, I mean that is a surprise, but potentially very exciting news, I would guess, for Manchester United fans because the bulk of them haven't enjoyed or embraced the Glazer regime. It does smack, doesn't it, Dave, both at Manchester United and Liverpool, of very smart, cold, bloodless businessmen cashing in. Yeah, and I think it's because they, they look at the landscape and certainly they look at sort of the, the, the sale of Chelsea and, you know, the the influx of money that's going to a place like Newcastle where the, there's a chance for them to, to, to earn real big money. And and it's there's there's buyers out there. You know, there's lots of talk about Jim Radcliffe and, and and even now, I mean, they're talking about whether he's got enough money or whether he's finding extra finance from somewhere to be able to buy Manchester United. And that's the... Is he still the richest man in Britain? I think he <laughs> if, is, yeah. If not, he's one of them, you know. And it just shows you how, how big business the football's getting now. And it's sort of like... It does just make you wonder how far it can go, you know, because once, you know, once Liverpool are sold for... Whatever it is, three, four billion they're talking about. How much they talk about for Manchester United? How far beyond that can they can they go? 
and mm. it, it it really is staggering thinking of the, the the figures that's that's been bandied about. And there's probably only a few clubs who, who, who could command those fees, but we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised, should we? Because I mean, they're, they're invest investment people. You know, Liverpool's owners were all. This was always the the exit strategy, wasn't it? It's just about timing. What fascinates me, I think, is is the timing of of now and why. Partly, I think they've looked at Chelsea and what they got, or what Todd Bowley's consortium paid, and thought, Phew, this is the time. But you mentioned it there, Mike. Newcastle, another big player. This group of four and six is wider and there's no guarantees of that Champions League money anymore, is there? You can't bank on it year in, year out. You can't bank on winning these major trophies on attracting the very best players because you've got serious competition from more teams now. So, yeah, Liverpool and Manchester United, I'm not saying that they're running scared, but there's a part of me that thinks they're looking around and thinking, well, maybe... Yeah, this it's going to be tougher for us in the, in the years to come. So let's get out now. Mm. Well, I think what's going on at club level is is the other side of a pretty grubby coin that we're seeing also in Qatar, where, in my view, for what that's worth, FIFA have forfeited the right to lead the world game. There have been some wonderfully human moments, such as Jack Grealish's gold celebration for Finlay, the lad with cerebral palsy he met at Manchester City. But overall, this tournament has featured grotesque political power plays from a hypocritical, discredited regime. Remember, 15 of the 22 men who voted to take the World Cup to Qatar have faced criminal charges or been banned from the game. Modern football's changing, and I'd support a breakaway by leading nations a new blueprint for the international games needed. That, of course, would require courage and foresight, two qualities singularly lacking in Qatar so far. If nothing changes, I see more fans migrating away from the game at the highest level. On that note, thanks to Luke Williams for his observations, and of course, thanks to David and Adrian for their insights. If you've any views on events in Qatar, I'd love to hear them. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.